If you'd turn back with me to our last scripture reading, that's Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, and this evening we consider just the text that was read, verses 1 to 5. Before we take up those lines, I'd remind you where we were. The apostle took us to a holy and to a deep place. In the preceding verses, you remember that we have a compendium of the gospel. And it's a blistering picture of divine grace. It's a picture of union with Christ in the most charged and most concentrated form we could possibly find, not only in this epistle, but right throughout the New Testament. He has taken the church in Galatia from a controversy, a very intestine controversy in Antioch, and he has really propelled them to think about the substantial truths of the gospel as the apostle himself had experienced it. Remember, that's really the touchstone. The apostle drives the church here to contemplate what he knows tangibly to be the work of grace in his own soul as the benefits of Christ are applied to him. He's given us a compendium of the gospel in, in, in some of the most blistering, breathtaking ways imaginable. And so when we come to these first five verses of the third chapter, we perhaps are a bit surprised that he starts as he does. You remember that the very first line, as he turns to the church now specifically, reads, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? He begins by calling them foolish. The sense there is that they are dull. They are dull. They are ignorant. And then he he says they are bewitched. And the sense there is, is you can take it two ways. You could say these ones have an evil eye. That's an eye that just cannot perceive properly. Or, as we would take it in the English, and as our translators render it here, that they are, as it were, under some kind of, of external and supernatural force. And I want you to think about that just for a moment this evening. The apostle has just left a, bl- a wonderful picture of the grace of God as manifest in his own soul. And he turns to the churches in Galatia and he says, you Galatians are dull. And it seems, says the apostle to me, as though you are either in perceiving because of some natural defect, or if there's some kind of power that prevents you to see what is so plainly obvious, or what ought to be so plainly obvious. The apostle in this text, of course, is issuing a sound rebuke. I want you to notice that in that very first line, we have, if you like, the apostle's target. Of course, it is the church in Galatia, but it's more than that. He's dealing here with souls. And he's taking up that theme of legal inclinations as he finds that in the churches in Asia Minor. And he says very pointedly to every one of them, really, in this very first line, they, they have missed something that they ought to have seen so clearly. And as the apostle addresses it, he addresses it as an issue of the mind and of the heart. You see, beloved, I said this to you when we began the book of Galatians, but I, I think it's right for us to remind ourselves that the apostle here, as he even issues this rebuke, is dealing with doctrine 
and with devotion. He's dealing with the heart and with the mind all at once. And as he makes this attack on these legal inclinations, I want you to know, friend, he's, he's not hacking at the tree with an axe. He's burning it. And he's taking the thing out by the roots and he's salting the earth. He, in this rebuke, as we'll see in the next five verses, intends to uproot legal inclinations as he finds them in the churches in Galatia. A Christian, for you and I, as we read this text, of course, this is pertinent because it's the word of God. You and I are to read this text. You and I are to hear this text. Yes, as it's a historical text. We are to hear this as it is the word of God. Whenever we hear this, beloved, you and I are to hear it as though God were speaking it to us. Lewis Bailey put it that way powerfully, as though the Lord himself were over your shoulder and speaking the very words to you. And so if this church is under rebuke because they have legal inclinations, as we have legal inclinations, this rebuke is for us. And the rebuke is for us mind and heart. For us, in terms of our inclinations and our thinkings, all alike. And Christian, as we look at this text, the theme that emerges from these five verses is quite straightforward. These legal inclinations that the apostle rebukes the Galatians for having, he here proves that they are contrary to gracious experience. Legal inclinations are contrary to gracious experience. I want us to see that, first of all, by looking at what the apostle presents to us in the first two verses. That line continues, ye that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. The apostle begins here by saying pointedly that that they ought to have obeyed the truth. And the fact that they aren't, it's it's a thing that staggers the apostle. What does he mean by obeying the truth? The sense there in the original is very straightforward. The idea is, They must be a people who are convinced from the heart of these things. It's not just the idea that they will assent to these things in a tertiary or or, or basic kind of way. When he says you must obey the truth, he's saying pointedly, what is it that has moved your inmost thinking away from the truth of the gospel? That's what he's talking about in this first verse. He's saying very pointedly, what is it has so moved you away from from seeing what you ought to have seen so clearly? And what has moved you away longer so thoroughly convinced as you ought to have been? And then he subjoins to that something of an explanation. Before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. The word there evidently has the idea of being publicly written or, or placarded, if you like. And he says to the churches in Galatia, Jesus Christ has been crucified among you. Now, friend, of course, you and I, as we look at the map, we recognize that the Galatians were very far removed from Jerusalem when Christ was crucified. They were nowhere geographically near Calvary. And, of course, this was a congregation that at that time, they were still in paganism. So what does he mean that Jesus Christ was crucified among them? Well, beloved, the sense certainly is tied to that word evidently, isn't it? He was placarded among them and publicly. 
The Apostle, in other words, says, how is it that you could not be so thoroughly convinced of the gospel of free grace, seeing that before your very eyes, Jesus Christ and Him crucified has been placarded before you? But then in the second verse, he continues. This only what I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. And I want you to notice the emphasis on that first line is crucial. This only what I learn of you. I have only one question for you, says the apostle. Just one. That inward work of grace that you know. That inward work of grace that should be so tangible to you. How did it come to you? Did did it come to you whenever you were engaged in rigorous law-keeping, in the sense of the covenant of works, trying to earn your way, meriting your way back to God? Did it come to you that way? Or did it come to you, as he says here, through the hearing of faith? Of course, here he's talking about the proclamation of the gospel. This gospel of free grace that the apostle has insisted on. It had come to you through that hearing that you laid hold of by no other instrument than by faith. You see, if we hold these two verses together, the apostle raises for us a very basic argument. You have sat under the preaching of God's word that has publicly placarded Christ crucified in front of you. And moreover, You are a people who has responded to that word and you have already known the inward motions of that work of grace. And Paul says, if these things are known to you in such a way, how could you leave this gospel of free grace? How could you entertain those legal inclinations? Your very experience under the preaching of the gospel, your very experience of the life of grace tells you, proclaims to you clearly that this is not through meriting by your own righteousness any place with God. You see, beloved, what the Apostle argues here with regard to the Galatians is true of every single believer. And it reminds us then that a gracious experience under the word of God is contrary to legal inclinations. He doesn't here make an argument that's incredibly theoretical. He he doesn't rehearse for them that kind of systematic treatment you find in the epistle of the Romans. No, he comes down to their own heart, to their own soul. He summons, as it were, their own memories as witnesses. And he says, you have known this by experience. And so how could you give in to these legal inclinations? You yourselves could testify against yourselves, he says. I want you to look at this just briefly with me for a moment. As the apostle first fixes their thoughts and their hearts on an objective argument. And that's the one you have in the very first verse. Where he fixes them on Christ crucified. As he is publicly preached or placarded. And and let's say he's dealing with the theoretical legalist. You you know who I'm talking about. The the man or the woman who, who really does believe whose theology dictates that they can merit something by their own good works before God. How does he deal with that person in this text? It's a very straightforward answer. He says, look at Christ crucified. The Christ who is preached to you, the Christ whom you saw through the preaching of God's word, what Christ was that? And when you saw him crucified, what did he say? He said, it is finished. 
The sense being that there is no further reckoning. That He, the, the perfect Son, the Son of God's love, said as the one who alone was the blemishless Lamb of God, He has said it is finished. And so how could you say that you could add to His work? It's irrational. If you've heard Christ crucified or right, then you know there is nothing more that could be left undone. And so there's nothing that you could contribute. The theoretical legalist, the the theologian who would tell you that that he needs to merit something additional to the work of Christ, Paul says roundly, just look to Christ crucified. Hear him from the cross. And there you have your answer. Friend, I would remind you that this epistle is not really just against the legalist. That, that is the legalist in thought, the legalist in theory. But he's dealing with the heart. He's dealing even with a practical legalist. The legalist of the heart. And how does this text reason with them? Well, friend, I want you to think about it just for a moment. To, to be a practical legalist is simply, of course, to be, be possessed of spiritual pride. To make much of our own acts of devotion. To strip them of the necessity of Christ's mediation and, and to, as it were, stand before God clothed in those things nakedly. How does this text deal with that person? Again, friend, he turns them to Christ crucified. But how does that grate against spiritual pride? The answer is so straightforward, isn't it? You see, When somebody is duly convinced of sin, when they're truly convicted, they're not just convinced that the evil that they have done, that would be called evil even by the world, requires the forgiveness, the pardon of God. That's not just what conviction does. It drives the soul to say, my my most sincere endeavors in obedience to God. As it were, my holiest moment, my sincerest devotion, nailed him there. You see, beloved, when he deals with spiritual pride, he urges them to look to Christ crucified. And a truly convicted soul will do so and see that even his holiest moment required a crucified Christ. He roundly, roundly refused spiritual pride. But but he also deals with those who would presume. Who would presume to go to God mindlessly and so Christlessly. How irrational is it for the soul not to think of Christ when it was only through Christ crucified that they have access to God? When it is only through this new and living way that they may approach Him? How irrational is it for them not, first of all, to touch that touchstone? How irrational is it not to have a thought of Christ when they go to the throne of grace, when they take up the Word of God, when they endeavor to obey? If it was necessary that the Son of God, that the Son of God would make that way by being crucified, slain for them, how irrational is it for them to presume to go on their own? Love it in all of these ways, he roundly refutes them. But in the second verse, he turns their attention away from that objective focus and he brings it quite close to home. 
He deals with the heart. And he says pointedly here that you know by experience that all life-giving grace comes only through free grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. And friend, I want you to notice, he turns to the theoretical the theoretical legalist for a moment and he's very clearly indicating that have you not have you not already learned that when you use the covenant of work the law as the covenant of works it doesn't lead you to greater holiness have you not already learned what Paul says at the end of, of, of the second chapter have you not already learned that the only way that you can live truly unto God is being dead to the law as it is a covenant of works. Did you not already learn the apostle could say to them that sin taking occasion by the commandment wrought in you all manner of concupiscence? Did you not find that when you used the covenant of works, it aggravated the flesh and it actually led you further and further in rebellion to God? It didn't make you more holy. see, Christian, then he also turns not only to the theoretical, but to the practical legalist. And he could say something very similarly. If using the law as a covenant of works was insufficient to lead you to true godliness, if it couldn't really make you live unto God, what has done that? It can only be a work of free grace. Something alien to yourself. A principle, truly, that comes only from God. And beloved, if that's the case, he could ask them very pointedly, if that work wasn't self-produced, then where did it come from? It must only come from the gracious motions of the Divine Spirit. And so is there any room for pride? Is there any room to make a boast, even in your sincerest acts of obedience? What hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory? As if thou hadst not received it. You see, Christian, the the idea that the apostle has in mind is the church in Galatia ought to have been like that heir. That that child who has received a vast estate and and that child who otherwise would have been homeless, he, as he's in that, that wonderful and that comfortable place in life, the apostle would have the Galatians, as it were, like that heir, eyeing, first of all, their charter, their title to that estate, and remembering that the clothing that they wear has been given to them. That they would look to Christ crucified and see that all of their standing before God is only from Him. And that even as they enjoy, even as they enjoy the inward motions of grace, they would remember that they are clothed with those things by another. The apostle says, if you don't see this, you become foolish. You have an evil eye. But that brings us to our second and our final point this evening. And that's the argument that you find here in the third, fourth, and fifth verses. He returns to that question. Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if it be in vain? And now note here, the apostle actually answers the question he raised in the second verse. They began by the Spirit. Uh, they, They didn't begin by by the works of the law. 
taking the law and using it as a covenant of works. No, it was by the gracious Spirit of God that they began. But then he raises a question that's so very crucial. You who have begun through free grace, through this gracious Spirit moving you and inducing you to Christ-likeness, how will you be perfected? How will you be made perfect? If you began by the work of this gracious Spirit, how will you be completed as it were? It's a crucial question. Will you be made complete by your own power? That's the sense of that verse. Will, is it a case, friend, that the Spirit of God begins and you perfect? That a work of grace starts your life of grace. But you, by your own workings, are sufficient to bring it to consummation. And then he says this, Have you suffered so many things in vain? And the sense, beloved, has to be kept with the first, the previous two questions. The idea there is, is if you are able to perfect yourself according to the power of the flesh, then all of the persecution you have suffered for clinging to Christ alone, is it in vain? Is it in vain having suffered so much by saying that you would hold only to Christ? But then as you come to the conclusion, he raises another question. He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Now he says here, first of all, your ministers. And then he says miracles. The word there in the original, it doesn't actually have in view gifts. The word there in the original actually has behind it the idea of power. In other words, then your ministers who are working powerfully among you, those ministers especially in which you see the grace of God working even extraordinarily, are those visible fruits from a keeping to the law, as it were, a covenant of works? Or are those ministers truly evangelical? Are these ones who preach the gospel of free grace and whose lives testify that they themselves hold to it? You see, in both cases, beloved, the apostle is really raising an issue of sanctifying grace. And through asking these questions, he's saying pointedly that the experience of sanctifying grace is contrary to legalism. You see, the beginning of the life of grace, of course, requires that gracious spirit. And Paul's argument here is that the continuance of that gracious spirit is what is necessary for sanctification. The theorist, the legal the legal theologian would turn to us and say, well, well, grace began the life, this Christian life, but I will complete it. That is, through an infusion of grace, I will be brought to a point where I, by my own power, will be able to stand. And in standing, I will be able to complete the work that was begun. I want you to know something, friend, that teaching is not far from any of us. That teaching is just down the road. 
That is broad evangelicalism by and large, but of course that's Roman Catholicism. What the Apostle Paul is teaching us here pointedly is that it is insufficient. If it is insufficient rather for the self to begin or start the work of grace, how could you complete it on your own? How could you claim any kind of sufficiency of the flesh to bring it to perfection? The apostles already told us plainly where he finds perfection. He says, Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live, I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. His is a life that is lived through the workings of God's Spirit, that is through the Spirit of God sent by the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul puts it this way in the course of the church in Philippi. He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And beloved, we know the text, but John 15, of course. Without me ye can do nothing. All of these texts conspire, as it were, to tell the person who would say that grace begins, but I perfect, that that's not the life. That's not the life of true grace. No, beloved, he who begins must complete. And so the Apostle strikingly says, even your sanctification requires you to throw all upon Christ. Yes, we are a people who are called to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. None of that's diminished. But beloved, all of that is to be sought from Christ. But he deals with a practical legalist as well in this way. What do you do with those who are proud spiritually, those who are imbued with this kind of ambition? That they will simply resolve to be holy. And they won't do so through the gospel. They simply will say that I'll make new resolutions and I'll just put my mind as it were to it. And I'll just overcome that sin and I'll just engage in that duty afresh and I'll just do the thing. What does Paul say to them? Beloved, if, if that person is not really thinking and drawing down upon Christ... Paul is saying pointedly to them, you're saying you began a life of grace. What makes you think that you can complete it, that you can do any of those things, good and lawful in themselves, without first mining them, as it were, from the gospel, drawing those very things from the wells of salvation? You see, the apostles are a wonderful picture that the most holy men are the most evangelical. They're not the most resolved. I can take you to monasteries and nunneries where you'll find resolutions. I can take you even to Muslims and Hindus who are apparently devoted. But beloved, I can say by point of fact, you will only find true holiness among those who are evangelical, who draw those things from Christ and by faith. Just to give that illustration as we close, look at the apostle himself. Paul says pointedly, I do count them, that is all of his righteousnesses before, I do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. And again, as we read already, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
a thoroughly evangelical man, a man whose disposition is to throw himself upon Christ. But then we find the same man saying to us in 1 Corinthians 9, I keep my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I preach to others, I myself should be a castaway. A man who he says he beats, as it were, his body into subjection. A thoroughly evangelical man throws himself entirely upon Christ, and yet is a man who is mortified in so many, and even in so many tangible ways, and describes himself as, as thorough in the work. Not only that, but the same man tells us that besides those things that he suffered outside, Turning back to 2 Corinthians, when he enumerates all of his sufferings, he says, I've suffered all of those external hardships, but there's also something else I've suffered. Beside those things that are without that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. The man has a burden for the people of God. Such that even all of those afflictions that he's just given to us, he says that one thing that is most internal is that I'm burdened by the work of Christ's kingdom. A man who's truly godly and denied to himself. A man who's willing to stand alone. At my first answer, no man stood with me, says Paul, but all men forsook me. Beloved, we could go on, but the apostle gives us a wonderful picture of a godly man. But what was the source? Was he simply a man resolved? Was he simply a man who said, I have just determined to be holy? No, friend, he is a resolved man. We find that he even made vows. But we're told here that he did so in Jesus Christ. He sought all of those things and was strengthened in all of those ways because... Because, as he says here, his life was lived in the faith of the Son of God. So Christian, as we close, what do we find here in this text? Oh, beloved, what we find here is is that if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, those legal inclinations that you have, that residual bent toward the covenant of works, your experience in grace, contradicts them all. And Christian, that's crucial for you to know because that means you have a witness within that should drive you away from self-righteousness, from self-reliance. A witness put there by the Spirit of God testifying to his own free grace. Beloved, this text is so pregnant with examples of how the believer is to think about the sufficiency of Christ. Paul, in so many different ways, even in these few verses, is driving the church and so driving you and me to think that if we have anything before God, it is only through Him. And if we are made more into Christ's likeness, it is only because of Him. The apostle in so many ways, yes, tersely, Yes, even forcefully, but no less really and no no less comfortingly to the believer, 
He says, the life that you have, if it's truly of grace, beloved, it only testifies to the fullness and the sufficiency that you have in Christ. So Christian, make use of the means of of that grace. If all of these things come only from him, then go to the wells of salvation and draw deeply. Those who are most touched by the gospel are those who will be most diligent in the use of the means because they know their need and they know the sufficiency of Christ. But friend, they also are people who are very, very careful to put the death, that legal inclination that still remains. There's a principle of grace within that mitigates against it. They know it's blasphemous. They know it is contrary to sanctification. And so, beloved, take this text and make use of it to that end. Allow these things to urge you to put to death your own bent to the covenant of works, that through the Lord Jesus Christ you may indeed live unto God. Amen.